this this event today is a little bit of one of these public good type things that we like to do at CSIS sometimes. Uh, my boss, Senior Vice President Dan Rundy, um, is a big believer in doing public good type events like this, especially when they're really thoughtful, smart, constructive, moving the ball forward type of things like this GAO report. I, th I encourage everyone to read it. I don't know, Jason, if these little links work, but that's a really great idea um, using modern technology here at CSIS. Um, I encourage you to read every word. It's really, really thoughtful, it's uh, constructive, and it, and it really does move the ball forward. So without further ado, I, I wanted to just introduce Jason, who's going to run us through the top highlights. Again, don't be satisfied just with the highlights. Read the report, study it, pass it on to colleagues or your parents or whoever else is interested in things like this. Um, so, so Jason is uh, the director of uh, GAO's International Affairs and Trade Team. He's been with GAO since 2000, and he has worked on a, a number of really interesting products, uh, projects over the years. He normally, his normal beat, uh, so to say, is the State Department, but he's um, got tasked to do this um, report that it sort of analyzes, I don't want to um, get ahead of his presentation, but sort of assesses how USAID is doing and how they're thinking about. This, this conversation today, both in presentations and the panel, is going to be a little bit more process-oriented, but I'm assuming that you're here sitting in these seats today because you're interested in the process and the process matters and you believe, like I do, that the process matters. Um, Jason happens to be also an LBJ grad down at the University of Texas at Austin, which I am as well. So it's, it's great to have a, a fellow Longhorn uh, here, despite how our football season is uh, shaping out to be. Um, but listen, that's enough from me. Uh, Jason, uh, please join me up here on, on the podium, and please join me in welcoming uh, Jason Baer. Thank you so much for the very kind and generous introduction, Errol, uh, and thanks for Dan and for CSIS for uh, hosting this event. Uh, it's going to be an excellent discussion, and frankly, thanks for the other folks in the front row who, <clears throat> excuse me, I think are going to uh, teach you a lot more than I am today. I'm, uh, as Errol said, happy to give you some of the highlights of our report, but these are the people who are on the front lines um, working with U.S. foreign assistance uh, and dealing with some of uh, the transformation issues that, that we're going to talk about today. Um, and also importantly, I see a lot of uh, really great policymakers and practitioners out in the audience and, and presumably joining us online too. Thank you for all the hard work that you do each and every day. Um, so with that, let's just talk a little bit about where, we, uh, where we've been and where we're going to go. Uh, the first slide is really just to kind of ground us a little bit on USAID reform, State Department reform. As with many administrations, a new administration comes in and says, let's make some changes here. Uh, and that certainly was the circumstance in this particular administration. Started back in April when OMB directed all the executive branch agencies uh, to really submit some reform proposals and plans. Uh, both state and USAID took that to heart. Uh, they very quickly got going on listening tours and generating a number of ideas and thinking about how they could build off of reform ideas that they'd had been going for a period of time. Um, you get then to September of 2017, and you have state and USAID coming together to submit a joint proposal 
uh, a joint reform plan, and that went to OMB. However, by January of 2018, USAID came to the conclusion that they weren't going to be able to work with State Department on some of those joint issues, and so they decided to move forward with their efforts, and they suspended their coordination with the State Department. Uh, then you get to February, and both State and USAID submitted their individual and separate reform plans uh, via their congressional budget justifications to Congress. And then only a month later, OMB has actually, had actually approved the proposals from the State Department. And that really is the process we talked about uh, in the report. And as Errol said, we really focused on the process for both developing and now implementing a number of these proposals. We didn't come by and judge whether any individual reform project or proposal was a good idea or a bad idea. We were really focused on how exactly they got to those key issues. The next slide is really just a, a GAO framework. As many of you know, GAO looks across the entire federal government, and we regularly look at issues of coordination and collaboration and agency reform. And so we uh, brought together in June of 2018 a lot of those ideas. These are general ideas that should apply to any um, federal agency that's attempting to reform or reorganize itself, and we decided to apply those in the circumstance of state and USAID. And these are principles that we think are critical to having uh, both the successful development and implementation of any reform effort. As you'll see on the left, we categorize them into four high-level categories. It's things like making sure you have goals and outcomes that are clearly defined, making sure there's a clear process for developing those reforms, implementing the reforms successfully, and then also strategically managing the workforce that's going to be affected. And each of those, as you see, has a number of subcategories that are relevant. And so we really use those as our criteria against which we judged what we saw USAID doing. The next slide is kind of the status update. Uh, admittedly, these are a little dated. Our reports came out in August and September, uh, so there may be some additional updates, which uh, Chris may be able to talk about a little bit. But I just want to provide this a little bit for comparative purposes. Again, both of these reform processes at state and USAID started at the same time. From a State Department's perspective, we saw 17 uh, projects that they were initially planning on doing. At the time we did our data uh, kind of analysis, they had one project that was completed. 13 of them were still at that point continuing, while three of those projects were either stalled or they had decided to discontinue the idea uh, totally. In contrast, in the USAID context, there were 34 reform projects that were initially proposed, and by the time this summer, the end of the summer rolled around, 19 of those had been completed. They were also working diligently on another 12, and one uh, related to human resource transformation was really still in the planning phases. And just for a little context, I know a lot of you are familiar with a lot of the details, but on the State Department side, a lot of those projects were really focused on human resources, information technology, data analytics, those kinds of things. And on the USAID side, a number of those projects, uh, there are 32 of them, uh, they do kind of cover the waterfront things in terms of fundamental organizational changes and reorganization. Uh, as well, some human resources improvements and focusing on national security implications. So with that, here's kind of the bottom line. This is the, the main takeaway from our analysis. Uh, again, we looked at 11 of the criteria and 11 of the key practices for USAID reform. Uh, the good news is for USAID, we found that 9 of 11 of them, they were generally addressing them. They were doing things that were specifically related to a number of the key practices, and um, I would be remiss if I didn't say that's a really impressive scorecard. Um, there aren't many agencies that when GAO comes in and audits you, we find you're doing pretty well on nine of the 11. Um, so kudos uh, to the staff at USAID who are really thinking these things through. 
just to be a little more specific, a number of the areas where we noted that they were doing particularly well were things like involving employees and stakeholders. Um, internally, they were doing things like town halls. They were having briefings internally, both at the management and staff level. They were sending out information in the newsletters. <clears throat> Excuse me. In addition, there were a number of things that they were doing to coordinate with many of you all out in the community. Further, we really did focus on um, managing duplication, overlap, and fragmentation. Uh, USAID's proposals and projects had a number of aspects that were really focused on that and streamlining especially some of their internal operations to make them more uh, efficient and effective. And then finally, I also do want to highlight they really did focus on a number of high-risk and ongoing key management challenges. As an auditor, a professional auditor, one of the things that was heartening was that they had an entire uh, project that was focused on reducing the backlog of audit findings. Um, we make a number of recommendations, uh, and we appreciate that they take those very seriously. And, uh, and frankly, we've seen over the last year there has been a real focus on making sure that uh, both GAO and Inspector General recommendations are being implemented. Nonetheless, if you're going 9 for 11, that means that there are two areas where we do see you have opportunities for continued growth. And so I'll spend a couple of minutes just focusing on those two. The first is about performance measures. This is an area that oftentimes comes up when we're doing our work. Um, but the real key issue here was that when we looked at the projects and how they designed them, only four of the 32 projects when they were designed had outcome-oriented performance measures associated with them. And so let me just give you a couple of examples. Uh, the first is that they do have a project where they're trying to leverage uh, foreign service national talent, a really critical part of USAID's workforce. Uh, and they are trying to increase the job satisfaction as, reflect as reflected in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. So we think that's a really good example of an outcome-oriented performance measure that can demonstrate their progress. In addition, they have a large HR transformation project where one of their goals in that project is to fill 100% of their, prior, uh, their priority foreign service officer positions by 2021. These are the kinds of things that we'd like to do them more, uh, like to see them do more. But since there were only four of the project that had them, there were 28 that didn't, and that's something that we encourage USAID to continue to do as they implement their reform projects. The second large area where we identified opportunities for improvement was really focused on strategic workforce planning. And so from GAO's perspective, strategic workforce planning is really an overall effort that helps agencies to align their human capital programs with both their current and emerging mission and programmatic goals. So that encompasses a lot of things, but the key is that you're focused on what the goals of your organization are, or in this case, the goals of your transformation effort are. What's really critical and key there is that in order to do that effectively, you've got to be able to understand what your current capabilities are and what your future and emerging needs are going to be. And then you've got to identify what those gaps are and have plans for how you're going to address those gaps in your workforce so that you'll be able to successfully achieve your mission overall. So last but not least, I wanted to bring forward a few takeaways. And this first bullet is one where um, I can give you a little bit of comparison between the state experience and the USAID experience. If, you may have noticed on the very first slide where we had uh, a, the title of our review focused on State Department reform, the key phrase there was leadership focus and attention. That was an area where we thought that the State Department needed to do more to have clarity from the top down on what their reform efforts were really intended to do and what the priorities of the agency are. 
That's not a gap that we found in the USAID experience. We found that uh, USAID's transformation task team had a clarity of vision, they outlined clear goals, had support from senior management, and had a dedicated uh, task team that was really focused on making sure that the reform ideas turned into implemented solutions. And that's an area where we saw contrast um, and certainly is critical as you saw on the slide about how many of the projects had been completed on the State Department side versus on the USAID side, I think that's one way to kind of have a barometer for how important that leadership focus and attention is. The second key takeaway that I'd like to leave you all with is about performance measures. We talked on the last slide about the importance of performance measures, but let me just take it one step further. Those performance measures are critical so that everybody in the agency, all the stakeholders outside, and the folks on the Hill know where is it that you're trying to drive to? What's your end goal? And just as importantly, how much progress are you making toward that goal? Are you a third of the way there? Are you half the way there? Are you 90% of the way there? So that everybody can understand the progress uh, toward achieving the, uh, the overall expected outcome. And the final point I'll leave you with is strategic workforce planning. Again, I talked about that a moment ago, but here's the additional piece that I think is important in the USAID reform context. And that is strategic workforce planning is something that GAO encourages every agency to do all of the time. But I think it's critically important when you do find yourself in a situation where you're trying to reorganize and reform. And I would say, ideally, from our perspective, strategic workforce planning would precede any attempt to reorganize your organization. Because the real risk is if you reorganize and you shift all the, all the um, organizational chart, and then you come along and say, okay, well, how, who do we need to fit into these various buckets? You've missed the opportunity to really take a step back, look strategically and say, okay, what do we need in a workforce to achieve our mission and goals now and in the future? and then let that drive how you choose to reform it. And so that's an area where uh, I know that USAID is continuing those efforts. They are um, moving forward on their strategic workforce plan, and we look forward to seeing how that's, uh, that comes out in the coming months. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. I, I'm struck by the strategic nature of, of USAID's transformation, and by that I mean the quickest way to an auditor's heart is by reducing the backlog of previous audit findings. Uh, so <laughs> really, really smart. Um, in addition to having a, a really great suit on today, Chris Milligan is uh, the, the counselor to the U.S. Agency for International Development. Chris is one of the most decorated and longest-serving um, senior Foreign Service officers in the U.S. government. It's an honor to have him here. He's, he's worked on issues in countries from Madagascar to Burma to Haiti. He worked on the first QDDR. Those of us in D.C. know, know what that is uh, and how important that was. Uh, and now he, he finds himself as a, in an incredibly important and senior position as the counselor to USAID. And, and I see a couple of other Counselor, former counselors in, in the audience, so Chris, no, no pressure. Um, but uh, we, we thought it was really important to have um, USAID, again, Jason said a lot of really, I think, constructive um, things here, but we thought it really important to have uh, USAID's perspective. So, so Chris, would love to welcome you to the podium, and, and thanks again for being here. Good morning, and thank you, Errol. 
And thank you, CSIS, for hosting us today and focusing on an issue of such importance, which is the USAID transformation. We really appreciate the GEO's recommendations. Thank you, Jason. From the beginning, we have led a very participatory process, seeking input, not only inside the building, but outside the building. And that's why we really appreciate today's panel, because we continue to seek input as the transformation goes forward. I, um, I believe that these transformation reforms are essential if USAID is going to effectively respond to the conditions in an evolving world. I was overseas. I returned to Washington about a year and several months ago. And while I was overseas, I was, uh, I, I was participating by providing input from Madagascar in the transformation. And now that I've been back here, I've seen it firsthand. So I've seen it from both the field perspective and also the Washington perspective. And you know, when we think about the transformation, we think about how it's changing our programs, our processes, our people, our workforce, and our structures. And today's talk highlights some of the successes we've had uh, in nine of the 11 GAO recommendations and the work that needs to be done and that we are doing in two other key areas that, that Jason highlighted. Um, I also appreciate the GAO highlighted some successful accomplishments that we have really prioritized, like involving employees and involving key stakeholders from start to finish, uh, using data and evidence, and addressing fragmentation and duplication, and among other things. So I've been with USAID for almost 30 years, and I see a lot of other very experienced USAID officers in the, in, in the audience today, too. And I've seen many reforms. But what impresses me most about these reforms are the speed and the scale of the reforms. And I think that's, that's attributable to the hard work and dedication of many USAID employees, my, my colleagues. As I said, these are the most impressive changes in my 30 years of working at USAID. The other thing I appreciate, as Jason noted, he said, new administration, they come in and say, OK, let's make some changes. And what's been done this time is, let's make changes furthering the reforms you guys have been doing over the previous eight years, which I appreciate that the transformation builds upon the reforms we did when we stood up the PPL Bureau, brought back the discipline of strategy, of project design, of M&E. We're building on those initiatives. Um, as Jason mentioned, the first recommendation from the GAO review was to create outcome-oriented performance measures. Transformation, when we launched it, was launched by standing up a transformation task team, T3. Um, and the team was charged with putting together outcome and output-based uh, indicators, as well as milestones and deliverables. And we do have output indicators and milestones and deliverables for our programs. We have, we're working on getting the outcome ones right. And we're doing the outcome ones now because we're focusing on moving from the design to the implementation. So where are we now? The T3 team, this design team, has stood down. And the different programs are being owned by various elements of the agency, by the, their home bureaus and, and relevant offices who are charged with institutionalizing them and implementing them. And so we, while we don't have 
or the time the, re the recommendation was written didn't have outcome-oriented performance measures, we are establishing them for the areas where they do not exist. As I mentioned, when we think about transformation, we think about the programs, we think about the processes, the workforce, and the structures. And as I also mentioned, what impresses me is the scale and the speed. So let me talk a little bit about some of the things that, that are actually have been done. If we think about programs, um, we heard from a lot of our stakeholders, our own staff, we heard from Congress, we heard from our partners about having a more data-driven conversation about where countries need to go. And we've come up with the country roadmap and the metrics, and they're a reality. We've done two years of country roadmaps now, we've made them available online, and we've now incorporated the country roadmap into our agency guidance on developing strategies, the CDCS. And I really think that the country roadmap has increased USAID's leadership. Because this is my personal opinion at USAID, we are hardwired to think about sectors, right? We're hired because we have a technical expertise. Our money comes earmarked in a sector. We design it by a sector. We measure it by a sector. We evaluate it by a sector. A country roadmap challenges us to think about country progress, not just about success in your sector. And to come up with a theory of change. So the country roadmap is an informational data point that says, let's sit down and have a conversation about what a country needs to get to that next level. Because in many cases, as many of you know in this room, we have been very successful in individual sectors, but the country has not moved forward. And so are we really successful? So, Instead of having a mission statement that talks about every sector in the world where our sector people, can, like including myself, can look up and say, oh, there's my sector, I feel okay, I'll go back and do my own thing, we now can talk about country progress. The, uh, under processes, we are moving forward on the action plan for implementing the uh, effective partnering and procurement reform. We have stood up new tools like the New Partners Initiative, which is expanding our partner base. Uh, we're doing, actually are doing co-creation and co-design. It's very exciting. We have, every mission now has a point of contact for our private sector engagement. We have developed a whole new suite of tools to help our missions in the field engage and collaborate with the private sector. We're rethinking how we provide technical support to the field. When I'm in the field and I needed something, I knew it was basically who you knew in Washington and did they want to come to your country? Or how could you entice them to come out? We are bringing out a more corporate approach called the Agency Approach to Field Services, which is going to have a database. It's going to be transparent. And it'll also help us measure the requests we get for technical assistance so that we can start hiring for those needs going forward. When you think about the workforce, one of the reforms we've done is we've, we've brought out a new leadership philosophy and the leadership philosophy, for the first time, talks about a common set of principles for what it means to be a leader in USAID. And you say, so what? This is just a philosophy. How are you making it real? We're implementing this throughout our programs. We're implementing it through our new evaluation system. We have a new Foreign Service Performance Management System. I never thought we'd see that day. We have the old process we use really prioritized the paper and the process of getting the evaluation done. The new system 
emphasizes the relationship between supervisor and employee. And it really puts a lot of uh, responsibility on, the on that relationship, which is, it's, again, is a huge reform. Finally, we talk about structure. As you know, we're standing up new bureaus. We have approval from Congress to stand up new bureaus. These bureaus are conflict prevention stabilization. They're resilience and food security, humanitarian assistance, combining some other bureaus, making a technical bureau of democracy, development, and innovation. For me, transformation is the agency's recognition and response to a changing world. We know now that the majority of our programs are in conflict states or fragile states, that the majority of our programs are addressing the effects of conflict or trying to diminish the drivers of conflict. We know that 80% of our humanitarian assistance is to meet needs because of conflict. So the world has evolved from where we were before. And what we're doing is we're taking these core competencies, conflict prevention, stabilization, resilience, humanitarian assistance, breaking them out of the DACHA Bureau and, and elevating them through new structures. But importantly, integrating them as well. Because for so long, the international community has, has reinforced stovepipes between humanitarian assistance, conflict, and development. So we are not only breaking these out and elevating them, we are integrating them because they're all parts of a country's development journey going forward. I'll just very, I didn't take up too much time. I'll be very brief on the, on the uh, strategic workforce planning. Uh, we recognize that our greatest resource is our people. I think USAID has one of the most complicated workforces in the federal government with foreign service, civil service, foreign service nationals, Foreign Service Limited, PASAs, RASAs, institutional contractors, uh, yada, yada. Um, we have now developed a strategic workforce plan for fiscal year 2021 that will help us identify our future needs. But aside from this workforce plan, we have been doing individual strategic workforce planning for each bureau as we stood it up. We have had a corporate approach to, to our civil service hiring through the hiring uh, review board, and we're looking at how we can streamline that process. We have brought on 56 new career foreign service officers, and we look forward to bringing on another 250 in fiscal years 20 and 21, which is exciting news for the foreign service. Um, we're also focused on how to improve the professional development of our foreign service nationals, which make up three quarters of our workforce overseas. So just wrapping up, as I said, transformation is our recognition and response to the fact that the world is changing. And we have to be successful if we're going to be relevant and if we're going to actually take on these challenges. So I am impressed that our career employees have been involved in leading and developing this initiative. Our reforms reflect their input and their ideas. We've made great progress in tackling some of the toughest issues our agency faces. I think the agency is already different than it was a year ago when I came back to Washington. And I look forward to its continued success. And its continued success means that we continue to hear from you and we continue to have these kinds of discussions. So thank you very much.
quick little set change there. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Chris. That was really great. Um, and, and really appreciate you being here and taking the time to, to offer those thoughts. I, I think that um, both the report and what you guys continue to do over at USAID is, is certainly um, transforming the way that, that the US government thinks about foreign assistance. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is bring a group of, of outside folks together with Jason to, to delve a little bit deeper into some of these issues and to, at the same time, talk about things like how do you communicate and how do you, um, how do you work better with Congress on things like this? Because ultimately, uh, you know, they're going to be a really critical player in this too. I wanted to make a quick public service announcement that I realize that there are three people on this stage that are involved in the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network. Um, and so I'm anticipating uh, feedback that I will get on that. That was deliberate. I love MFAN. Um, I also think that, <laughs> thanks Connor. I, I also think that, that MFAN is, you know, has a group of people that are not on MFAN staff that, that think really strategically and thoughtfully about these issues. And so it was natural when I was thinking about, uh, and Dan was thinking about who to, who to put on the stage for this, um, it, it was pretty natural that they were my first call. So I'm gonna get that out of the way, um, but, I think I wanted not just MFAN, obviously, Connor, but I wanted people who, both in their day jobs and in their, their nights and weekends, think about these really, really critical issues. Um, I think what Chris talked about and, and what Jason's report goes into uh, great detail on are, are really important. Again, process-related, when we think about global development, we need to always be thinking about our partners in the field, we need to be thinking about development impact. But for us to get there, we need to be thinking about some of these more wonky, um, go deep, but also be more integrated type things like, like Chris was talking about. And so I'm really excited to have this panel. And I was going to ask uh, Jenny Russell to, to make a few um, comments first. Jenny is uh, the senior director in the public policy and advocacy department of Save the Children U.S. And Jenny, I don't know if you know this, but I myself am a Save alum from okay. South Sudan uh, back in the day. So, um, I, and that was not why I asked you to be here, but um, is, is a, like LBJ is, is kind of a coincidence. Um, You've worked in, in a lot of different organizations on not only these issues, but issues in the field. You worked for things like the Enough Project, which as mm -hmm. a South Sudan guy, you know, matters a lot to me. Um, you've worked at the Center for American Progress in, in senior roles, and, and you, you're, you're really, really thoughtful um, about these issues, which is why I wanted you to be here. But I thought maybe you could just tell us a little bit about um, about how USAID can, can sort of explain what it's doing uh, internally and externally. We, we heard about some of these town halls and I think all of us on stage were involved in some of the external stakeholder engagements that we really appreciated. Um, but if you could, you know, you've spent a, a career working in, in advocacy and, and storytelling in mm -hmm. a way. Uh, and so how would you recommend that USAID improve uh, how it, it communicates these, these reforms and this transformation? Thank you. 
And hi, everybody. It's great to be here. And thank you, um, Jason and Chris and Earl. Um, wonderful opening remarks from all of you. Um, I just wanted to, to start by saying that um, I think I can speak for IMFAN and Save the Children that we have been very supportive of the transformation process. You know, I celebrate these internal reforms that uh, USAID is doing. I would um, want to work myself out of the job. I think that's the right thing to be doing. Um, and I think that, that USAID has gotten a lot right over the, over the last couple years. Um, for all Nats fans out there, we, we have hit it out of the park. <laughs> I had to connect it to the Nationals. Um, at the same time, I mean, I think there's some learning. So uh, while USAID has, you know, carried out extensive consultations and, you know, in Washington and listening tours with employees, also with implementing partners like Save the Children, um, they've spoken to, to OMB, to the Capitol Hill, to MFAN, um, lots of, of groups, and Administrator Green, to his credit, I think has really wanted the transformation to be, to be led by knowledge and evidence and what we've learned from working over the decades in development and, and also from the pain points of, that employees face in their day-to-day -day jobs. I think all of that has, has been fantastic. Um, like any good advocate, I'm going to talk about the areas of growth and the areas of learning, uh, and especially related to communication. Um, I think one uh, one learning and one area of growth has just been that I think in the messaging around the journey to self-reliance, I think it's been a little bit unclear uh, what is the intrinsic change that we want to make uh, for countries and people. And, you know, other than moving people off the off reliance, off, off assistance, um, so many of you have been in development for a long time and remember um, the mission to end extreme poverty. And I, I've sat with several USAID staff and asked, you know, what has happened to that mission of ending extreme poverty? And I think, I think the journey to self-reliance talks about independence, but it is a question of you know, reliance for who and reliance how, um, and what is the ultimate vision um, that, you know, what is the vision for people that we are trying to achieve, and how, are, how, how is USAID making their lives better? So for me, there's been a little bit, uh, the, the, the theory of change is missing a little bit in, in the journey to self-reliance. The other thing I would mention is just the, the, the approach to soliciting views and knowledge from others. I think it's been a, a very Washington-centric process. And I think this GAO report um, illustrates that as USAID thinks about um, the key stakeholders, they're thinking about a Washington audience and they're thinking about mission directors. Um, but as I, I feel like it's been a fairly narrow view of stakeholders um, because there's country governments, there's local governments, um, central and, and, and subnational, there's civil society organizations and media and academics and think tanks and private sector. And I think that 
that realm has not been tapped um, in the transportation transformation process to the extent that it that it should. So um, I think those are a couple points to start off with. Yeah, I think that's very useful, Jenny. And um, USA does have a private sector strategy that they've recently developed and, and launched, and I think that's something that they can really build on and, and get private sector voices to to play more of a a role. We did an event here um, a few weeks ago called More Than a Wallet, the role of the private sector in, in development. And, and when I think about, I'm really into naming these events, by the way, so, <laughs> so you'll, you'll have to excuse me for that. Um, but the idea was that, that in every conversation that I have with folks in the private sector that are working in emerging economies, they'd love to be seen as more than a wallet. Right, they'd love to be seen as more than just um, someone to fund someone else's development priorities, and so you know we had a conversation about that. But I, I would agree with you in saying that, uh, Jenny, that there's there's more that uh, definitely can be done to expand that stakeholder group um, and, and communicate that more effectively. So thanks, Connor. Can I turn to you? So Connor is um, the executive director of MFAN. And he's also a CSIS alum. Um, I didn't put him on stage because he hired me, I promise. <laughs> Although, for, again, for the sake of full disclosure, that is also true. <laughs> um, Connor and I co-authored a, a report in 2017 um, that honestly was born out of a similar uh, executive order that Jason cites as the reason for his report, which is uh, the Trump administration had called for an increase in effectiveness, accountability, and efficiency across all agencies. And so Connor and I, uh, led by Dan Rundy, put together a, a task force and a, and a report on reorganizing U.S. foreign assistance. And um, I'll withhold some editorialization on the other reasons why we did that, but it was a really important um, effort that, that we did together, and I, I really came to appreciate the, the depth uh, of Connor's knowledge and his, his ability to play 17-dimensional chess that is the U.S. government bureaucracy. Um, and, and so I wanted him up here to, to talk to us a little bit about what he's hearing about the reforms, and, and specifically, Connor, if you could talk about any gaps that, that you see. And, and you know, we talked about the 30, USAID's 32 reform projects, but talk to us a little bit about any, any gaps that you see and any other thoughts that you have. Uh, sure, and uh, thank you um, for having me here today. I promise you I did not make a phone call asking for a favor or anything like that. Um, but no, it is always great to be back here at CSIS, um, and um, really pleased to be here representing MFAN as well. Um, I, you know, Errol, I think y you said you wouldn't editorialize. I'll editorialize a little bit because I think Going back to the beginning of the Trump administration, I think one of the main reasons we did that um, task force report was there was some real, it wasn't clear where that executive order was headed. And I think there was a lot of rumor and a lot of supposition about um, how state and aid might be reorged, reorganized together, um, what were there, this was an administration that did not seem like it had strong feelings, or if it did have strong feelings, they were negative um, about foreign assistance. And so I think when I reflect on where we were 
in the spring where we were rushing to do this report, where we assembled this task force and we got it done in- The spring of 2017. Spring of 2017, we got things done in eight to 10 weeks. Um, you know, I think where we are now is a much different place. And I think transformation, I think we've all been very pleasantly surprised by uh, Administrator Mark Green's um, efforts, I think, we are in a much different place than we we could have been, um, and that uh, you know we owe a lot to the administrator for for coming in with us his vision of ending the need for foreign assistance, which has now you know generated the journey to self reliance and this broader transformation effort. Um, but in terms of gaps, there's two that I do want to highlight, um, and they're not so much things that AID has missed; they are things that they're trying to do, but that we haven't gotten to we haven't finished yet. The first is uh, the PRP Bureau, um, which is uh, Policy Resources and Performance. Um, this is an effort to really bring together several disparate functions around AID into one, uh, one unit. And that's really about bringing this strategy and policy piece that Chris referenced earlier, the monitoring and evaluation, as well as budget. And I think one one of the recommendations that we had in the task force report that Errol and I have talked about was this real need to link strategy and budget. Um, it's PRP is not the the perfect end result because there we will still have to AID and others will still have to deal with congressional earmarks, presidential initiatives, but it is a step in the right direction of much of seeking to better align strategy and budget and to think about it in a much more strategic and holistic fashion. Uh, PRP is one of the bureaus that Congress has not released the holds on. I would urge my colleagues on the Hill to consider releasing those holds. Um, I understand that some of the issues may um, may uh, stem from what is the relationship between PRP and the Office of Foreign Assistance at the State Department. Um, and that is a complicated relationship. Um, GAO has also just done a recent report on the 653A process. Um, I would commend that report to everyone as well. It's an excellent uh, review of why uh, it takes so long for state and aid to obligate funds. Um, but I really would say if we, if this, if this transformation is to have its, to be most effective, we need to get PRP done. We need to find a way, we need to get something done. And I understand that AID is looking at how they might respond to some of the issues that uh, have come up in this process. And so I'm hopeful that over the next few months we can see some progress there. Although given what's going on on the Hill, maybe not. Um, the second piece I would highlight is on the journey to self-reliance. Um, I think you know, I, I share Chris's enthusiasm for these country plans. I share the enthusiasm for thinking about our approach beyond just a sector level approach. I think one of the things that the journey and these country roadmaps does is for the first time we really are thinking about in a holistic manner where all of these 85 countries are on a journey by measuring their capacity and commitment. And we have, they've produced a scatter, to real, a scatter chart that really shows you, okay, here's where they are and we wanna go from point A to point B. This is great. This is really giving us a way to think about where, how we have to move countries along that journey. Um, one gap that I see on this, and this is not 
I'm not claiming a unique view on this is, what happens at the end of the journey? How do we transition to this new relationship? What is the role for the other US development agencies in the journey to self-reliance? I think this is one of those areas where if we really are gonna talk about eventually reaching strategic foreign assistance transitions, we really need to think about where does MCC come in? Where does the new US Development Finance Corporation come in? Where does USTDA, if it's still around, where do our other, where does the State Department play a role? Where does commerce, where does USTR? Thinking, using it as a, to its full potential would be about bringing in all the other agencies. Um, and I mean, ultimately, my view would be using it as to really elevate or perhaps lead eventually to uh, a, a whole of government global development strategy or something along those lines. I mean, that could be the ultimate outcome that we're all driving toward. But even as a sort of middle ground, really thinking about bringing in the other agencies uh, will be critical, I think, to getting to that end. I'll stop there. No, I, I, I agree, Connor, and thanks for bringing up, um, I think when you say whole of government, there's a little bit of PTSD for people that were, have been in government before, but, <laughs> but, but maybe that's the next level of uh, excuse me, sophistication here is, you know, Ambassador Green has, I agree with, with Connor and, and Jenny and others that is, he's done a remarkable job uh, internally and he's done really well in the interagency. However, the interagency now needs to do better. And I don't know if that's during a second Trump administration or the next Democratic administration. Regardless, they need to be thinking about this in more of a, a whole of government. I mean, we've mentioned F, we've mentioned PRP and some of these other really critical places. So one agency getting its house in order is, is not enough. Uh, there are lots of other parts of the U.S. government that that play a role in this, one of which is Congress. And so I uh, am honored to have uh, Lori here. Lori Groves uh, Raleigh has spent something like 20 years um, in, and around the, in and around the Hill and served most recently as the senior professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee responsible for U.S. foreign assistance policy, i.e. some of the things that we're talking about here, uh, and, and with a specific focus on food security and climate change and, and some of these other issues. Um, she's now at uh, one of our, our friend and peer competitor organizations, the, the Luger Center, where she continues to really do uh, amazing work in this space. And so you head the Luger Center's Global Food Security and Foreign Assistance Programs. Um, and like I said, you're, you're also uh, intricately involved in MFAN. So Lori, thanks for being here and, and would love your general thoughts um, on what the role of Capitol Hill is here. I think it's one thing to talk about things in an interagency perspective, but those of us who have studied this and understand this know that that true long-lasting change comes from Congress. Um, and so would love to hear your thoughts on that. Great, thanks very much for having me, Errol. It's a pleasure to be here to join the panel and, uh, and Chris as well from the agency to talk about this really important topic because process and policy really are what end up getting the job done in the end. And if you don't have it right 
behind the scenes, it's really hard to be successful um, in the front. So yes, I worked on Capitol Hill for over 20 years. I worked both in the House and in the Senate. I worked for an appropriator and authorizer um, as well. And so I have um, had the opportunity to see all sides, if you will, majority, minority. <laughs> majority is always more fun. Um, <laughs> Democrat, Republican, yeah. yeah, right. they, yeah. Doesn't matter the Doesn't party, matter. it's always more yep. fun in the majority. <laughs> but anyway, what I wanted to start with is first thanking GAO. They really are a terrific partner of the Congress in understanding things, sometimes at a much deeper dive level, level than we on the staff or even the member themselves is ever able to go on any particular program or um, policy area. So they always were a partner of ours. I remember um, working for my uh, former boss in the House who was an appropriator um, during some really high spending times when we were um, restoring the Everglades. And GAO was an incredible partner looking at how that money was being spent, how the Corps of Engineers was redirecting water flow, and how we were restoring our national park and our um, national wildlife refuges. And we had huge you know, oversight hearings on it. They were the lead speakers in our hearings. And when we went down to see the site and really experience it, we had that base of knowledge and that depth when we went to see the site visit. It was really critical. Um, I really relied on GAO and the terrific folks in the international program when I was at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee looking at food aid programs. They were able to do a deep dive and show us these very distinct cost differences between the USAID implemented food aid program and the ones implemented on the um, USDA side and helped us to really think through, through their recommendations on how to reform those programs. So they really were very valuable partners and remained that way today. And I'm sure that um, the Hill will very much appreciate what Jason and his team have done in this um, GAO report, as well as in the one that you mentioned, Connor, with regard to the state and the you do, did as well, Errol, on the 653A funding, which is something that really definitely needs to be addressed. And um, so we definitely appreciated them. We appreciated their recommendations. What I liked about GAO's recommendations is they were usually really reasonable and they had an understanding from for our perspective that some things we just couldn't do. Mm. Um, they weren't like pie in the sky things like, yeah, right, when would that ever happen? And we're just never gonna coalesce around that. So they really gave us real world, real um, concrete recommendations that we could follow through on. And the report that we're talking about today, in addition to some of the, the points that my colleagues on the stage brought up, I'll just um, say, you know, with a department, with an agency that was founded in the 1960s, one of uh, the things that we in the community now today talked about when we had this new executive order come out in early 17 was, this is a great opportunity we can coalesce around reforming an agency for the 21st century. And some of us here on the panel talked about um, 
you know, it's a, it's a now a world that's very focused on conflict, for example. Um, some of the other issues that we had to deal with in the 60s, 70s, and 80s are still there, but in many ways they're not. And uh, it was really fun, actually, in a, in a sort of policy wonk kind of way to see leadership. Our co-chairs at MFAN came up with a, a, an idea and a framework about what a 21st century aid agency would look like. You at CSIS did a similar project, I think um, uh, Atlantic Council did something. So there were a whole host of organizations here in the community who came together really embracing this. And again, the transformation task force team that came in and engaged both internally and externally, from my perspective, is what is bringing us here today with this such an outstanding results document from GAO. Um, and without that sort of vision and leadership moving forward, Together, I don't think we would be in this great place. We are talking about how to keep this process moving, especially when you compare the process at the State Department that took place at the same period of time and what Jason showed their progress is. Right. Uh, I, I agree with all that, and I, I'm glad that you spent a, a few minutes of your time talking about GAO more broadly because I think that this is a wholly underutilized and underappreciated um, use of my tax dollars, which I fully, <laughs> fully support. Um, so Jason, I'm glad you have a job and I'm, I'm, glad, that, I'm glad that you exist uh, and, and keep doing the great work that you're doing. Lori, could I just uh, ask a follow-up? I mean, when you, think about, when you think about a report like this, you've, gave, you've given a couple of examples, but, but how does Congress, how, how can they use something like this? And, and maybe more broadly, what is Congress's role in the transformation agenda as you see it? Well, I think Connor started by talking about, and Jason as well too, that a lot of the recommendations that came out of um, the T3 team really were changes that the agency itself could implement a lot of, and a few had to be approved by Congress. And a number of those came up to Congress, those changes came up to Congress in, in a congressional notification, a CN that we call it in our, in our world of Washington lingo. Um, and Congress took its time, it had to go to the, the committees in the House and the Senate, both the authorizers and the appropriators. And each of them took very serious and deliberative time to review them, Not lots of briefings, lots of Q&A back and forth. And we've moved through the process, through, and most of those changes have been approved, as, as Chris pointed out. Jason as well. The PRP Bureau is still one that's really sort of out there that has a lot of questions remaining. It's a complicated issue, um, but Congress can continue to support the agency very much so by working with the agency and allowing it to, to carry out these changes, allow itself to transform into the premier agency, aid agency it's capable of being in a 21st century world. They can do it both um, by signing off on those CNs, they can do it through various um, other support mechanisms too on providing in, uh, enough funding to make the strategic workforce changes that it seeks, making sure the O&E expenses are fully funded so that it can lead in this new um, foreign service um, change, et cetera, and really supporting it in making these reforms. We can't do it in a big authorization bill. We know we've tried for decades to reform 
aid with big authorization bills, it's really pretty much a no-go. It's just too much of a, a lift. I, that's really good, and, and I'm glad you brought up the the funding piece because just the one other personal bit of editorialization is don't cut the foreign aid budget. Right. <laughs> Full stop. Um, Jason, if I could come back to you uh, and and you know I welcome any reflections on on Chris's remarks and the and the panel's remarks, but um, also just. What is the, the follow-up from this report, both at GAO and, and, and in the community? What are you hearing? How is this being used? How can you know, folks in this room uh, also use this report? So first, thanks for all the wonderful compliments that the, the team has gotten. Uh, it's, it's great and heartening to hear that uh, people not only read the reports, but find them useful. So thank you for all of that. Um, I, w I really kind of think of the feedback that we've gotten on three levels. You know, the first and foremost is from USAID. You know, we wrote a report about them and what they've been, you know, what they were doing for an 18-month period. Um, and as you can see, if you choose to look at the report, they wrote us a letter uh, responding to the recommendations we made, and they had a very positive response to those. And those are the kinds of letters we like, because we try to make recommendations which are reasonable and aren't pie in the sky and are doable. Um, at, while at the same time giving the agencies the flexibility to implement uh, needed changes in, a, in an appropriate way. And so I'd say we've got a very positive response from USAID. Uh, part of that legal process is about 180 days after we complete a report and have recommendations to an agency, they submit a plan to us and to the Hill uh, on what they're going to do. So we look forward to seeing that, but I expect that to uh, continue to trend in a positive direction. Uh, in terms of the Hill, I, I would note a couple things. Uh, one is we did this work with broad congressional interest. It was authorizers. It was appropriators. It was the House. It was the Senate. Um, and we very intentionally did it that way so that we'd have the opportunity on a real-time basis to have those conversations with people who are grappling with those issues. And that continues. You know, there certainly is a lot in the foreign affairs arena going on on the Hill right now. Uh, this hasn't, but, but rest assured, this has not dropped off of their radar screens as well because they're deeply invested in making sure that state and, and USAID are effective organizations moving forward. Uh, and then the other part is in terms of the response that we've gotten from the community. Um, I made it a point to send out notes to, to a few people who I thought were particularly influential and were helpful for us as we thought about through these issues. Um, and they've all been very positive in, in how they're thinking about how can we move things forward? You know, how can the community really support USAID as they're trying to go in a direction that, that, uh, that they generally seem to think is a positive direction? Um, and there are a number of organizations that have asked me and others to come and talk about the results. So I guess the short answer is the conversation is continuing. This isn't one of those situations where a report comes out and then people say, okay, yeah, that's interesting, and then it goes off the radar screen. People are continuing to engage with it. That's excellent. Uh, I want to open it up to, to questions from the audience uh, in, in a little bit, but I wanted to take uh, the moderator's prerogative to ask Jenny specifically a follow-up on this financing self-reliance bit of, of the reform. It's not something that we've talked about here today, and I think that it's, uh, it's, it's something really important. So I unfortunately missed the, the public consultation last week uh, that happened over at the Reagan Building, but if you could tell us a little bit about how that is going and, and how that fits into this conversation that we're having here today. Sure. Well, I think it's going well, and I think that um, just by uh, looking at the room uh, during that consultation, I think people are really interested in in um, the question of 
of, you know, how how is USAID helping um, countries to finance, you know, be financially um, stable and, you know, to stably finance its development. And I think on the positive side, USAID has a, a really good approach, which I would hope that um, is partly because IMFAN pushed them on it. Um, but that is um, that it's not just a technical conversation. Um, it's not only about economic growth. It's not only about you know tax to GDP ratio. It's not only about the private sector and how they work, but it's also about governance issues. And it's how the citizen-state compact is working and how citizens hold their governments responsible. So um, the way that USA, USAID has structured the financing self-reliance work is through um, to, to be co-led by the E3 Bureau and the, the DRG Bureau. And that will enable to have that conversation, which is both technical and political. So I think that's a really positive thing. On the challenging side, I think going back to the to the consultation piece, um, it's it's just a, a question of you know to what degree is USAID looking at the full picture and really getting a sense of the context in the countries where they're working to see um, you know what kinds of contextual, cultural, political challenges they're facing in um, financing development, and I think that 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 side of the picture is hasn't been as robust. Excellent. Thanks, Jenny. Um, I wanted to open it up to questions. Uh, I'll take two or three, and um, I reserve the right to add them uh, <laughs> if needed. But uh, this gentleman here first. Please stand up and identify yourself and end in a question mark. Doug Brooks, uh, International Stability Operations Association, which are the contractors that work in conflict, post-conflict, and disaster relief. Um, uh, Great forum, really interesting information. Next time you need a bigger palace to, to hold this in. Um, my question is actually on the, you said uh, you talked to the private sector to get feedback from them. And I'm curious, what kind of feedback were you getting? Were you getting genuine feedback? Uh, I think companies are always a little shy about talking to their, uh, <laughs> to their uh, sources of funding and giving real feedback. So I'm just kind of curious, were you getting genuine uh, information and, and was it helpful? Excellent. Um, and then we'll take a couple others. Uh, there was a question here. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Carlos Ponce, Columbia University. I just want to to know if in in the in the report in the study, did you took uh, into account the the analysis of the overhead from the implementers? Uh, NICRA is a black box. There is any analysis of how about uh, caps? in terms of overhead and the cost of operating programs uh, versus the impact in country? I'm glad a wonky dis discussion brought up NICRA. Uh, it's something near and dear to my heart as a former implementer as well. Um, any other non-men who have questions? <laughs> we'll, we'll hopefully get to another round, but uh, okay. Yes, sir. Uh, Sam, we had one more question over here, gentleman in the glasses, second row. Hi, uh, my name is Haki Abazi. I just left a job of uh, being a chief of party for a USAID funded program in Pakistan, which is interesting because I'm a child of USAID from Kosovo. Started with OTI there, and then now I just became an MP in Kosovo. 
So my question is, how much consideration is being given to coordination with big players, given that USAID is a big player in a country, like the European Union funders, the EBRD, World Bank, you know, ADB and others, because, you know, we set our theory of change perhaps in a best, mo most elaborative way and inclusive way, but the reality on the ground hits with so many actors that sometimes it's very hard to see the result framework really unfolding the way we would be able to measure either the success or the failure, which is part of the work. So that's one. And second, um, and I know it's not easy to ask this question, but I still will ask, how much greener USAID is going to be in terms of climate change, the dropping the coal investment around the world, and following trends that sometimes is very difficult in countries that are bound with their vision of fossil fuels and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, thanks for that question and congratulations on your election. That's exciting. Um, I'm gonna uh, do something a little bit strange here. Chris, if you would like to um, respond to any of those, um, I'll, I'll come to you. I'll go to the panel first and then, um, Chris, I also saw an another hand back there from Someone, yes, this young woman here, uh, third to back row. Thank you. Hi, thanks. I'm Nellie Mecklenburg with Institute for State Effectiveness. Just building on your question, I was also wondering about, it's a lot of great internal process alignment, but inter process alignment with the other donors, but also with the governments that you're working with in countries. Excellent, thanks. Uh, I think what I will do um, is, provide an equal opportunity for panelists to, there were, by my count, about five questions, all five of which I think were excellent, and I will hold the panel accountable to answering all of them if they don't, but let's at least uh, err on the side of, of um, self-selecting which ones you wanna to answer. So Laura, if we could just start with you, and then we'll go Jason, Jenny, Connor, and then over to Chris as well. So I'm going to do, answer one of the questions that I feel like I have some ability to answer, even though I'm not obviously on the agency side, and by doing a quick commercial, a reminder of MFAN's two reform pillars. One is country ownership, and the second one is accountability. And within the pillar of accountability are transparency, monitoring and evaluation, and learning. So with regard to the question about coordination, one of the things that we have continued to advocate for many, many years as MFAN on the transparency side is getting information out there about who is doing what where, not just the United States, but other donors as well. So um, some folks have do this through um, one of our uh, partners who works with us on the accountability working group, country ownership and accountability working group, publish what you fund, where folks report what they're doing and where and exactly what those programs are on an international aid transparency the index and um, people can see where things are happening, in, et cetera. Um, I'm hopeful this is happening on the ground with leadership um, at U.S. missions, et cetera, but it is a very difficult challenge, and I understand that, and I think we it's a, a challenge we all have to keep working on together because there are lots of players in a lot of these conflict um, states sandboxes, and if they're tripping all over each other and not using their um, each of their individual strengths, we're not really being productive in really helping people move from poverty 
poverty and come into the global economy. Excellent. Thanks, Lori. Jason? All right, so I will be very brief because the focus of our work really was about the transformation process itself, and this really wasn't focused on the implementation of foreign assistance funding, which I think is the, central to a number of the questions here. So I'll, I'll speak very briefly and let it to people who are in a better position to answer some of those things. But it is just to reinforce this, you know, a couple of these questions had a, a, a common strand of coordination, whether that be with private sector, with contractors, other donors, governments. I think that's exactly the kind of thing that, as reform takes hold, is going to be critical to whether it is successful or not. And, you know, it's not just important on, you know, how you reorganize and reform yourselves, but it's important on how you actually implement the programs. We do a lot of reviews every year for Congress, focusing on monitoring and evaluation and things like that. So we have a lot of detail on that, but that's not really the focus of what we have today. So I'll pass it to others who, who know a lot more about that. Yeah, I would just add that um, I think this issue of coordination and uh, consultation is critical. Coordination with other donors that are working with as partners with USAID, um, consultation and coordinated w coordination with the governments. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting, and I, I was asking Jason about this, in the questionnaire um, of the GAO for this report, it had the questions, how and to what extent has the agency considered the views of state and local governments that would be affected by the proposed reforms? And how to what extent have agencies gathered the views of the public and incorporated these views in the proposed reforms? That template's actually geared for the U.S. Um, so... It would be important to take those questions and ask those uh, to about the key st stakeholders in the countries where, you, since USAID is working, um, you know, with, with foreign bodies. So, um, I think being able to answer that question of, you know, certainly USAID is focused on certain areas and did, done deep dives with consultation in Washington, but looking more broadly at other donor partners and, and in-country, I think is going to be critical going forward. Everybody loves the, the coordination question. Yes. So I'll just uh, <laughs> remind us that we also have a question on the from our ISOA friend on the private sector. I, I take his question to be the private sector implementer community. Um, uh, so, so sort of expanding that to to be the implementers. There was the overhead NICRA question, coordination. Um, I think the, the question about uh, a more green approach to reform is, is a really important one, especially given today's news. Um, and then there was a question about uh, greater alignment. So um, not that everybody will be able to answer every question. Uh, no pressure, Connor. Should uh, I back? I but, can back uh, clean up. No, Chris can back clean up. And, and Chris, no pressure. We, go, I mean, but we can go around. Connor, over um, you. Yeah, no, I, I think a couple of quick things, and uh, Lori referenced one of our reform pillars. The other one is country ownership, and I think, um, you know, a lot of this coordination question really gets at this country ownership piece and how are we actually aligning um, with a country's own development priorities. And I think, you know, for the United States, that is often a really challenging approach, certainly for USAID, because so much of the money is uh, earmarked uh, by Congress around specific sectors or and then country level. And so it isn't always done um, with a country's 
development priorities in mind. Um, I think you know the journey to self-reliance is a great step toward that, to think about it at a more strategic level. It builds off of all of the work that was done with the CDCS process. Um, in the previous administration, which continues, um, you know, again, this is why some of the pieces that we haven't been able to necessarily tackle, like PRP and others, are really important to really think about how we can create better alignment. Um, I think I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole on implementing partners, but I will say I think one of the important pieces that we haven't touched on that's part of transformation is around the procurement side of things. Um, and that's yielded a new acquisition strategy. Um, it's yielded a new initiative called uh, NPI, New Partners Initiative, where USAID is really trying to think about how they can go beyond just the regular uh, the regular folks, Comonix, DAI, and others, and SAVE, and the big INGOs, um, to think about new local partners that they could work with, uh, many of whom probably have a lot of AID experience already because they're working with the big people on a sub-basis. Um, you know, the ANA strategy is also, was really thinking about new mechanisms. Um, you know, there is a tendency to rely on a, a handful of contracting mechanisms, whether it's large IDIQ contracts or um, large grants uh, to INGOs when, you know, AID actually has a lot of different uh, different mechanisms at its disposal. I think this move towards greater co-creation or through the use of BAA's broad agency announcements has really, I think, helped yield some interesting new approaches to uh, project design um, and implementation. And so I think keeping keeping an eye on that piece is, is equally important as to some of these bigger the how we're reorganizing the bureaus or what does this journey to self-reliance um, but the procurement piece has been equally important and has been one that administrator green has been equally um, focused on I'm, I'm really glad you brought up procurement because i think there, there's been yeah everybody don't get too excited um, i think that there's been there's been really great bipartisan reforms to, to foreign aid over the years, and I could think of ones that were done under Democratic administrations and Republican administrations. And I think, as wonky as it is, maybe one of the next big ideas in U.S. foreign assistance should be comprehensive procurement reform. Um, I know that this is... Uh, it's, it's a little bit controversial and it's, it's certainly wonky, but I think that we need to rethink the way that we program uh, and, and the way that we do our, our foreign assistance. So I'm, it's sort of a challenge to all of us uh, to think, and I think I agree with Connor that Administrator Green has done uh, a, put a lot of focus on this, and I think he's done a, a, you know, a lot within the bounds of what he can do himself. But this has got to involve Congress. This has got to involve some other folks in the interagency. And, and I think this, this is a broader conversation that um, perhaps in a, in a sort of greater uh, era of, of government reform, um, I'd like to believe could be possible. So thank you for, for bringing that up. The only other thing I get as excited about is taxes. Um, so I won't go on my tax uh, sort of domestic resource mobilization high horse here, but I get real excited about procurement. So. Apologize. Um, Chris, thanks again for being here and, and for being able to have me call an audible and, and, and have you respond. But I think some of these questions showcase a, a, just an appetite to be involved and part of this journey to self-reliance um, transformation that you guys are going through. So would welcome your thoughts on any of the questions that were posed. I appreciate it. And um, 
Yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. I thought not being on the panel, I could duck questions, right? Um, <laughs> let me talk a little bit about uh, other donors and governments, the private sector and green. Um, first of all, my own biases. I don't think that development will naturally occur from one program or one development agency. I think it's about the coordinated uh, side of what we do. One is a, the second thought I have is I don't think that development is a good or a bad. It's a tool and it's how it's used. And so I think if it's not coordinated, you can actually do harm, particularly if not everyone has the same assumptions about the operating environment. Uh, I also think that development is not going to be successful unless it's hand in glove with diplomacy. Uh, and because of the, the influence that that brings and the access that that brings. Those are my, my, that's how I approach some of these questions. So what are we doing with other donors? I recently attended the Tidewater uh, Donor Dialogue. The Tidewater Donor Dialogue brings the OECD development ministers together to have very frank conversations on the priorities, the top priorities facing this donor group. Uh, and there was great interest and continues to be great interest in the Journey of Self-Reliance. Uh, some of the donors proposed actually seeing if we could adapt these public indicators across other development contexts. There was a conversation about how while we have to continue to meet the SDGs, SDGs don't resonate. They don't tell a story. They seem like an endless case for charity, particularly among a lot of the domestic audiences. And what I was surprised to hear was even our Scandinavian countries have a hard time connecting to their audiences about what is it the development does and how, is it just endless charity? And so there was a lot of interest in that. And we continue to engage with other donors. And we do so because of another issue we talked about at Tidewater, which is the changing context in which we're working, which is this competition for ideas, which is that we have rival governments that are proposing their own journey to self-reliance, I wouldn't call it reliance, with, uh, with corrosive capital and other, other beings. And so we have a competition for ideas with authoritarian governments that are proposing a very different model than ours. And so there's great interest in these, at the capitals among what is USA doing and what are others doing and how we're looking at it. And now quickly, briefly in the field. Yes, the journey of self-reliance requires leadership among our USAID uh, staff in the field because it is about articulating that theory of change and having that conversation so that we all know among uh, development agencies and stakeholders that we're approaching a problem with the same common assumptions, that we're not doing harm, and that we are then really coordinating different aspects. We make sure that, we, uh, that all our host countries are briefed on their roadmap every year. We get feedback from every country on how that worked. And, um, and then we last for best examples coming out of it. Very, very briefly, private sector engagement. We engage regularly with the PSC organization on specific elements of what we do, prioritizing our work plan. But we go further than that. And I'm proud to say that at the, in the field level, we had a record year for USAID missions in expanding the number of small businesses that we've engaged with. Um, and finally, our private sector engagement strategy requires us to rethink how we approach the private sector as a partner. 
asking first, is there a private sector solution? Why isn't it there? And what can we do to help? The issue of being green, uh, yes. I take a step back and look at it this way. The changing climate is, is something that erodes development gains, exacerbates conflict and humanitarian assistance. And by standing up these key areas of conflict prevention and humanitarian assistance that take these into account, we are looking at the drivers of conflict and we're looking at the critical issues in development going forward. And so it's incorporated through these aspects of what we do. Excellent. Thanks for bringing that up, Chris, and being willing to, to take those questions. I, I think that if we're here 15 years from now, and I hope I'm not sitting here 15 years from now, but if we are here 15 years from now, we're going to be talking a lot more than we are now about climate change and how it's at the root of the causes and, and the effects of, of some of our global development challenges. So thank you for that question, uh, Kosovo, our friend. And um, I, Chris, thanks for, for uh, that thoughtful response. I think we have time for one or two more questions, and then I'm, I've got a final curveball that I'll throw the, the panel. Yeah, this gentleman up here. Hi, uh, Mark Friend, One Campaign, former uh, USAID. I would like to actually give Chris a break and talk for a moment about the, your State Department, State Department report, Jason, and talk a little bit just the sort of difference between the USAID and the State Department and sort of some of those key lessons from the State Department report. And for the panel, what do you see as the big reform that State Department would need to, to take? I think that's actually a really great question to, to end on. Thank you for bringing up the other uh, link that we have up here. So Jason, over to you. Yeah, so thanks for the question. It's, uh, it's a great issue. And again, because we were looking at these in parallel, it gives us the opportunity to talk about the contrast between the two. And I think the biggest difference um, is twofold. One, the level of, I guess for lack of a better term, kind of maturity of where the State Department was with their reform projects and their implementation didn't give us as much information to draw upon uh, as opposed to USAID, where again, you look at the record, there are, you know, there was a larger number of reform projects, there were a larger number that were implemented, things like that. And one of the, the things that we saw as the key drivers was leadership focus and attention was certainly present on the USAID side. You heard, you know, T3 mentioned all across the panel probably, uh, and that's because everybody knew who was on there, what they were doing, and what they were responsible for. Um, that's... Uh, not what we found at the State Department. I mean, the thing that probably gets the headlines is certainly the transition from Secretary Tillerson to Secretary Pompeo. Um, and that was certainly part of it. You know, anytime you have the change at the top of an organization, there's going to be residual questions about, okay, were the previous priorities remaining a priority, things like that. But it frankly was much deeper beyond that. You had uh, a number of the reform pr proposals at the State Department all fell under the Undersecretary for Management, as many of you all know. Uh, we had a person in an acting role in that position for a large part of the beginning of the administration. And no matter how good that person is, they're still in an acting role, and there's always going to be kind of the bureaucratic question of, you know, how far are they willing to go with and things like that. But then beyond that, the kind of last layer was at the working level, there just wasn't a, a, a clarity of vision and um, agreement on exactly what needed to be done. Even when things were devolved to a bureau level, how much of a priority is this? Do we have the resources to do it? Those things, I guess, were one of the other distinguishing factors, uh, again, between what we saw on the state side and the USAID side. 
Excellent. Thanks, Jason, and thanks for that question. Um, as a final question to the to panelists, I, I and those that have seen events that I've done before, this is not a surprise to you, but I'd love kind of your tweet length final takeaway from this conversation. We we went uh, we went far and wide in this, but if you want the the audience um, to to come out of this with just a short uh, snippet uh, of something that they can take with them, what would that be? Uh, and while they're thinking about that, Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for your long and distinguished public service. Uh, we're really grateful to have you over at USAID in, in that position uh, and, and being willing to take questions from a public audience. Uh, thank you for doing that. Jason, thanks for your also public service for, for doing this and for being so thoughtful and thorough with the reforms. Connor, Jenny, and Lori, um, thanks for dealing with my, uh, you know, absurdities every once in a while and, and uh, random questions and for, for taking the time out of your busy schedules to be here. So, uh, Connor, uh, could I put you on the spot? And, and what's your tweet level, or tweet length uh, takeaway for, for the audience here? 140 or 280 characters, what are we doing? Let's do, it's it's the new Can Twitter. It's a new it's era new of era. Twitter, okay. so it could be 280. Um, well, as someone who got off Twitter a long time ago because of its corrosive effects on my mind. Um, but that, yeah, so what I would actually say is, uh, let's look ahead and um, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think there will be, we are, people have alluded to the presidential election that's coming up, there will be a, um, if the Democrats win, I think there will be a there will be some folks who might want to throw stuff away. But I think let's take the approach that happened with this, which is building off of the eight years of strong reforms during the Obama administration, and let's take let's focus on the good here and the trans transformation, the journey to self-reliance, the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. These are the good things that have happened in this administration. The rhetoric, the rescissions. The cuts, the 30% cuts that have been proposed every year, that's the bad. We can throw that out, we can dispense with it, but let us let us keep stay focused on the good things and build and use those as a foundation to really push forward on some of these other issues that I and I know the MFAN community and others in the development community really want to push forward on to ensure that USAID and the United States retains and builds on its leadership as one of the leading development players in the world. So there, there is a baby in some good bathwater. There is a baby right. in so some good bathwater. So we should keep. And I would also say strong with a capital with an exclamation mark. Very strong reforms that very we've strong. seen at AID. Excellent. Thanks, Connor. Jenny, over to you. I would say um, reverse the arrows. Um, this was a um, a framework that. Um, a professor from American University uh, brought to a CGD a meeting last week. Um, and it's really about the idea of starting with the local community first and determining what skills they need to develop, what they want um, for development, uh, and argue it up the political chain of command. Um, and so, in, and reverse all those arrows of accountability and reporting. Um, and I think that's really kind of the sums up uh, what I hope USAID's approach will become in terms of development. Reverse the arrows, I haven't heard that before, but thank you for taking us back out to the field at the end of this conversation. Uh, Jason? 
So I have to admit, I'm going to take the easy way out because I'm the one person who has an actual report title that I can refer to <laughs> that I promise is 280 characters or less. So that, that really is my tweetable moment about um, USAID's efforts do address most of the key practices, but they could improve performance assessment and strategic workforce planning. And, and my addendum to that is, and I said it in my remarks, GAO doesn't often find when we look at 11 key practices that agencies are doing nine of them. I don't want that to be lost. Even though we did have a good healthy conversation around things like performance measures and strategic workforce planning, those other nine areas are areas where we think USAID was doing a pretty good job and we want them to continue doing that. So that's what I would, le I would leave with. Excellent. Thanks, Jason. Lori? So that's a perfect segue because those of you who know me know I'm an eternal optimist. So my tweet is very high optimism. That's why I left you for the last, okay. uh, Laura. <laughs> my tweet is, uh, I think it's the lower number, 130 characters. USAID should be applauded and supported for its work in transforming into a 21st century aid agency, partnering with countries on their journey to self-reliance. Excellent, and I think there's probably a hashtag to be had somewhere in there, so uh, thank, thanks. Uh, please join me in thanking uh, Chris and, and the panelists.